Boss Uncaged is a weekly podcast that releases the origin stories of business owners and entrepreneurs as they become uncaged trailblazers. In each episode, our hosts, S.A. Grant and guests construct narrative accounts of their collective business journeys and growth strategies. Learn key success habits and how to stay motivated through failure, all while developing a boss uncaged mindset. Break out of your cage and welcome our host, S.A. Grant. Welcome, welcome back to Boss and Cage Podcast. Today's guest is going to be an interesting guest. You know, off camera, we had a little conversation, a little sidebar, and come to find out that he named his company after a, a Persian poet that has the same birthday with me, which, which is kind of mind-blowing. It's crazy in a lot of different ways, right? And he also has, like, this huge academy, and those that know Boss and Cage know that we're working on our academy as well, too. So I think it's going to be a very interesting and detailed conversation. So I'm going to deem this individual the roomy boss. Tarek, without further ado, man, why don't you tell all these a little bit more about who you are? Well, thanks for that. That's a great introduction, by the way. Um, uh, you know, my name is Tarek Fancy. I spent, uh, you know, career in finance and after well decided to, you know, I really wanted to do something focused on social impact and really around education. It's something I'm really passionate about. So created Vermi and, and it's a, it's actually a tech, tech startup structured as a nonprofit that brings free learning to people, you know, and makes basically makes learning easy and fun, okay. right? Through micro learning on your mobile phone, quick five minute snippets allows you to build skills and replace social media time with something that's kind of, you know, beneficial to your mental health. Gotcha. And I think you, you also branded those, right? So, I mean, what's the name for the brand of those little bits that you're talking about? Ah, so the micro courses are called Bytes. Nice, so you can do nice. a bite in five minutes. You learn a, a new skill. It's on your mobile phone. It's quick. It's engaging. You know, the, they're made to be funny. They've got memes. They've got you know, other things that just kind of make it, you know, a fun alternative. Nice, nice. So if you could define yourself in three to five words, what would those three to five words be? I'd say tenacious, right? Um, probably bold and optimistic. I'd stop there. Let's say those three. So with bold and optimistic, right? I'm, I'm just going to pull off those two, two words, right? I could definitely see bold because you know, you're coming from a VC, a finance background. And to go from that background, you have to be bold as hell to say, you know what? I'm going to jump that ship and I'm going to convert into education, right? And then optimistic yeah. as well to kind of, you know, take what you've learned in one environment and grow it in another one. So let's talk about that transition a little bit. Like, why did a VC guy convert into an education? You know, it's an interesting one. I, I, I had done finance and you know, it wasn't even specifically VC. It was kind of like hedge fund type of, type of style investing. And, you know, what happened was I, I just never really, you know, it's, it's a lucrative field and, and you can do well, but it was never my passion. It's never what I wanted to do. And I realized that, you know, I could live comfortably and do something I cared about. So I left and did a year in business school. I was trying to figure out, you know, I was getting an MBA, but really I was trying to figure out, you know, what I want to do next. And I became really close friends with this guy. He was Dutch. He's from Holland. And he basically, um, you know, he was also in finance. He and I both said, hey, we want to do something, you know, someday that has social impact. And we never really, you know, we never really did it. Um, and then we kind of stayed in finance. And what pushed me over from one industry to another was that he actually, a few years after we graduated, was diagnosed with stage four cancer. Um, right. And it was stage four melanoma. And so he was my close friend and roommate, uh, business, uh, close friend and roommate in business school. You know, he, uh, you know, he, I think at that point, stage four melanoma is not even a question of what are your chances, it's a question of time. 
And so when he had limited time left, he went and created, a, uh, uh, you know, uh, an education initiative in Kenya, which actually is where my parents were born and raised. And, you know, I just saw him go through that and I lived it vicariously a bit. And then afterwards, I, I, you know, after he passed, I said, look, I have a chance to do something. I have a real idea on how to remake education and make it accessible to everyone. And it kind of you know, pushed me off the diving board to try gotcha. something completely different. Gotcha. Which is cool. I mean, obviously you had um, an interest that was outside of the monetary games. It was kind of more of a personal thing and it became a passion. I think you just dropped a couple, like, when you're looking at like the, like the entire world, I mean, obviously right now you're based out of Canada. You're talking about your mm-hmm. parents were from, from Africa. You're, and then also you went to um, Oxford University, which is like across from where you are right now. So let's talk about like that world traveling a little bit. Is, is that something that helped you to kind of say, okay, not only is it a personal jump, to jump into education, but are you taking elements from what you've learned from traveling and being abroad and bringing that into one system as well? Yeah, definitely. I mean, there's, I had read some research years ago that says that if you spent time living in different cultures, Mm -hmm. it's actually correlated with creativity. So you actually end up being more creative. And if you think about it, it's like anything else where you see different perspectives, right? In anything, you've seen the same thing from different angles. The more you understand that thing, and the more you can think of, you know, how to how how it could look different. And so, for me, you know, I I had parents that are South Asian descent, but they were born and raised in in East Africa for generations. Then grew up in Canada, then went to school in the states. And so, as I kind of bounced around, and I've gone through different um, geographies and different sort of sectors. Um, I think you know everyone's personality is a bit different. For me, I, I think it somewhat was also because. You know, um, I, I learned re- decently quickly, and and I and then you know, at some point when you master something, you like the challenge, right? Of doing something else that's meaningful. So I think that's kind of all contributed. Um, but yeah, I think traveling and having a kind of diverse background really is useful. If um, you know, if 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 it helps you to sort of see the world in different ways. Cool, cool. So I mean, you're talking about a little bit of your history. You tell us a little bit about your parents. So like, like this, this, I always like to time travel a little bit, right? So I mean, right now, mm-hmm. like you're doing your thing, but let's go back. Like, what were you like as a kid? Were you like as tenacious as you are right now? Were you like a real numbers kind of kid? Like, you know, were you more like Rain Man or were you more artistic? Like, which spectrum were you on? Uh, you know, I kind of moved a bit. I was probably a bit more Rain Man earlier, and then started to become a little bit more, you know, social and open up over time. I was good with numbers, naturally good with numbers and very analytical. And I had a deep passion for social change and, you know, improving the world around us. Right. This is, you know, I was growing up in, in the nineties and in high school and, you know um, you know, watching things going on around the world, you know, wars, this, that invasions. And, you know, it it just, I had a real passion for an international outlook. And so that kind of gave me this interest in, um, in international development and, you know, obviously having visited relatives in Kenya and seeing the extent of how, you know, some people there just, they don't have that opportunity. I realized how easy it was, not easy. I mean, it's still hard for people in North America, but, you know, in many cases, most of us or many of us hopefully have access to a good public education system, you know, basic infrastructure we get a chance to realize our potential in a way that doesn't really exist. And, and I, having seen that in Kenya, I think that kind of really motivated me. Right. And so I really cared about all that kind of stuff. And I followed a path that I think probably other people will be familiar with, which is to say that like, I kind of stumbled a little bit into, into the career I was doing into finance, because at the end of undergrad, I had my sights set on a big scholarship um, that, you know, would have taken me um, to England. It's a very prestigious one. 
and I missed it in the final round. And after missing in the final round, I didn't have a backup plan. This is one of the downsides of being optimistic and tenacious. Both, you know, you really you go for it. But then uh, in that case, I had I kind of put too many eggs in that basket. I didn't have a backup plan, and so you know, undergrad ended, and um, and I kind of didn't know what to do. And then these investment banks show up on campus, right? And they, you know, they they often will show up and try to pluck you know students that they like, right? They'll recruit them in there, in there, especially if they don't know what to do next right after school. And so I found myself kind of directionless and that's kind of how I fell into finance in the first place, right? I started learning it, I started appreciating it, but it was never like the original plan. Nice, nice. Yeah, I definitely appreciate you, you know, you know, building out that story a little bit deeper, right? So obviously you have a diverse background. One side of the coin is analytical, the other side of the coin, I think you have a little bit of creativity in you as well to kind of, I looked at your platform and kind of seen what you're bringing to the general public. So my next question is like, being that you have such a creative analytical mind, like why did you structure the company as a nonprofit versus uh, LLC or an S Corp or C Corp or any other flavor for that? Yeah, that's a really good question. The, it was intentional and it was both because I thought it would just be easier if I could only focus on creating social impact and not have to worry about managing one versus another. Mm-hmm. You can, sometimes I can, sometimes not. Um, but, you know, the, the, the main reason was that um, I saw a lot of power in um, motivating and, and building movements of people online mm-hmm. that um, that I think hasn't really been utilized for social impact yet in the way it can be. It's growing. And so to give you a sense, when I started my career, I was a banker, uh, an investment banker, and I was based in Silicon Valley. So all of our clients are tech companies. We're doing all the tech IPOs. This is like 2001 when I joined, so the end of the dot-com bubble. And in those following years, the group I was in, we had um, had done the Amazon IPO earlier. We would eventually do the Google one, you know, worked on some of the really biggest ones. And people would ask me, they'd say, what was your favorite organization? What was your favorite model, you know, you saw out in the Valley? And I would tell people, actually, it was Wikipedia, right? It was the one that was a charity. And the reason I thought it was so fascinating was because when they first started, people sort of said, how is this like nonprofit, right? A 501c3 nonprofit, how are they going to compete? with Encyclopedia Britannica, right? They've been doing it for like hundreds of years or from Microsoft, Carter, all these big companies. And they turned it on its head by basically turning most of the input costs for creating a, an encyclopedia, which would be, of course, you know, the time of the people writing it. Mm-hmm. They turned that into something free because they enticed people to come and create this for them, all with the guise of like creating a public resource that the world could use. Now, the challenge with doing that is that you need to be a 501c3. You need to be a charity because, you know, people are not going to come and, you know, do work for free that, you know, otherwise they could get paid to do so that, you know, as a founder, you get to, you know, go and IPO it and, and make a lot of loot, right? So you, so they really need it to be a nonprofit. And so our model at Rumi is that those micro courses that you see, the bites on Rumi.org, um, they are created by a growing volunteer community. So in, in some, so the way it works is that people, usually instructional designers and other educators apply and they join our community. We vet them on the way in and then we vet the content before it goes up. So it's not exactly like, it's like Wikipedia with quality control. Um, but what it allows us to do is unlock the power of tons of people, right? So in the last year, 3,500 people have, from zero to 3,500 people sort of have engaged and helped create content. We have companies, right, that have volunteer events where they all work virtually and they can create content. And it all allows them to distill their insights in job skills and career and life and how to get a job, all these things 
into these micro courses that youth really like because they're engaging and they're quick and you know it allows them then to get the, that um, get that expertise and those insights in a way that is digestible to the modern learner. Nice, nice. So I mean that that brings me to another really in depth question is. So with that model at hand, right? And so anybody that does not understand that particular model, like how is that model creating revenue? Now we understand that it's not supposed to show revenue on the books, but as employees of the company and founders of the company, like is there any equity share? Is there any payouts? Like how is that how does that really work? Because again, you're not doing all this necessarily for free. You gotta be able to pay the bills. So like where is the money in the flow of that? So for us, you know, we we try to pay competitive salaries because we have funding, whether it's grants or donors, um, which we're always looking for more so we can expand it, or uh, corporate partners, right, who support in various ways, um, including creating content, but then also sort of sponsoring and 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 um, making the sort of sponsorship or donations that allow us to continue. Um, so in that sense, it's like Wikipedia or Khan Academy, right? You have a, a model of funders that are you know backing, um, you know, making this available freely to the world. Um, and that allows us to pay, you know, what we try to pay competitive salaries to all the team. Um, but then in the end, there is no equity, right? I mean, equity would probably fall to the founder or a couple of key people who, in our case, you know, they're doing it because, you know, of course they get, you know, compensated for working. But, you know, the real upside isn't so much the, the sliver of a chance that you, you know, make it big, you know, because the company gets sold or whatever. In this case, it's the part of being, it's, it's it's being part of something big, right? Like mm -hmm. if you if you could be one of the people who created Wikipedia or this or that, and you scale something that you know you learn a ton in the process, and you create something that's a, kind of a game changer for humanity. Nice, nice. Yeah, because I mean, usually, well, recently I had a conversation with someone, and it was like in a networking group, and we were just talking about like if you wanted to start off a five hundred one c three, usually it started underneath an S corp or a C corp, and then that S corp C corp will fund it until you kind of get it up and running enough to get grants become golden. Or there's the other way around, like you can kind of go after the grants first, get it funded, and then start another separate S S corp behind it to kind of move some of that money through to kind of, you know, build another corporation parallel to it? It's a good question. I don't know the exact details because I think, you know, we didn't look as, as closely into that, but there's ways I guess you have to structure it carefully from a tax perspective. But I think, you know, a lot of nonprofits just start and they look for grant funding. And, um, you know, it's tricky to get. That's the big, that's the biggest challenge, right? Is, is that, but, you know, if you can get it, you can get up off the ground and create something, you know, that, that you know, you get some, some work capital to, to try out something new. Nice, nice. So, I mean, with that, I mean, obviously we're talking about like a lifelong journey. I mean, this didn't happen overnight, even though the perception of someone is probably now, they may have heard about Rumi first time today. And they're like, wow, this is a great platform. It has free content. Where has it been my entire life? But in reality, how long did it take you to kind of get to where you are right now? You know, it's it's been a lot of work over years, right? Because we actually started in 2013. And we were in the early days, you know, uh, helping, you know, our whole thing is to make digital learning easy and accessible and, and free. Um, and uh, and in, in many of the early days, we were doing a lot of stuff around the world, actually, with tools to help people bring free learning, find free learning content online and take it, take it offline or use it in an offline environment. Cause a lot of communities, you know, even now, but certainly, you know, in those days, like they didn't have a fast connection all the time. And, you know, it, 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 it was a barrier, right? Because you have, people have this assumption that if you have all this free learning content online, then it's going to equalize the playing field for, you know, richer and poorer students. 
actually the data shows in many cases that it actually increases educational inequality. Because if you have all these great new tools and they're amazing and they're personalized learning or this, that, but then they're only getting used by the students who already were at the top and had all the opportunities, the ones, you know, in the nice parts of Palo Alto or whatever, then, you know, it, it actually makes things a bit worse. So, you know, for us, um, you know, we were really focused on how do we make it easy for people to, to, to do and, and, and use, um, you know, get, get, take advantage of free learning. And as we went over the years, we started to realize something that I think all the education systems figured out, like since last March, when the, when COVID and the pandemic hit, they suddenly are forced to go, you know, purely digital. digital yeah. And so we um, had already started to pick up uh, years earlier that, you know, people learn on digital devices different than they learn on, um, you know, on a desktop, um, number one, or, or, you know, or obviously offline in a classroom. Um, and we all started to realize that, um, that, you know, once you try to target someone on their own device, you have a lot of competition, right? Because if you're a teacher teaching in classroom, like the kids are staring at you and they can't just like ignore you or run off or whatever. But if, if you're trying to get them to use their mobile phone, they're all sitting at home, your competition is suddenly TikTok, right? And Instagram and all these things that are sending notifications and they have tons of data on each person and the, an entire business model around trying to hack that person's attention and get them to come back to the platform. And so the one thing I think we started to figure out early was that all the education space thought quality equals impact, right? If you have really good quality learning stuff, then, you know, you give it to people and it creates learning impact and they learn stuff. We realized that if you're trying to target someone on the, on the device, you need quality times engagement, right? You've got to engage them because if you, if your education technology is like a PDF of a textbook and you give it to some you know, student on their phone, they're not, you know, they're going to look, I mean, who's going to want to do that if the alternative is a TikTok video. And so, you know, th th that kind of led us to micro learning. And so it's interesting when you talk about sort of what we've done, we, we, we made that shift to a, a newer micro learning platform now that we're rolling out across all of, you know, sort of uh, the programs we do around the world. But what's interesting about it is that all of, you know, that growth from zero with micro learning, it happened during the pandemic. So we launched it. We had, here, I'll give you some numbers are pretty cool. Went from zero to over 100,000 learners um, uh, quite quickly, right? And then, and now it's kind of accelerating. Um, we, and it's all kind of organic growth because it's like young people, you know, uh, there's this stat we found where nearly 90% of them say that it competes with social media. So it doesn't, you know, micro learning on your mobile phone, it, it's kind of quick and engaging. It, it, it feels like an Instagram session, right? Which the average session time is six minutes. With social media, you get a dopamine rush because you load something, right? And so it's like, you know, you get you get this this nice feeling. And so people are almost their brains aren't autopilot. They go and they quickly load the social media app whenever they get bored or they have five minutes. Turns out you get a dopamine rush from learning something also, right? So if you if you build a discrete sort of skill, um, and it can't be just you start in the middle of a lesson, you end in the middle. It has to be like start and finish, but you get it done. Then you get that same kind of dopamine rush that makes you feel better. And so over months and months of time, you know, replacing social media with with bite learning, as we call it, is something that, you know, really is helps you learn and it builds your mental health. And so we've done all that and, and grown the learners. But the cool part to the earlier conversation on sort of growing a volunteer community is that at the beginning, we had zero courses. Obviously, we, we had a bunch built up by ourselves and a few early uh, sort of volunteers. And so we launched with 50 courses. Right. And that's where we started. And now I think we're close to 50 a week. We're able to put out because we've grown that volunteer community right and so you sort of see how that can scale 
really quickly, right? If you, if you build movements of people online where, you know, you've got all the learners coming and you have all the people creating the content and they're both, you know, they're both growing rapidly. Right. And so that's why we're pretty, we're pretty bullish about what micro learning can do. So, I mean, it's, it's, I like the fact you ended on, on a bullish note, because I mean, obviously in, in the economy right now, digital learning is where it is. I think we're scheduled in, in 2026 to probably hit somewhere close to like half a trillion dollars worth of online learning, right? So the numbers right. are definitely increasing and they're inflating. So my next question is kind of like, like I'm not going to say like you're the antichrist to the digital online marketer, but like, how does that work? Because I mean, obviously there's digital marketers right now and the online gurus and you have like the online educators and you have the online marketers that are more niche to one particular topic and your platform is saying, well, okay, we, we can gather information. Again, you have a volunteer force to create 50 courses. Most marketers would dream about creating five courses. You're talking about 50 courses per week, which is, it's, it's, it's blown out of proportion in, in that market sector. So how does that really work? I mean, are you intrinsic and stepping on the space of the marketer or are you going to probably try to kind of bring the marketers over to the dark side? And you mean, sir, we step on the, the feet of the marketer because we're trying to take, you know, they're trying to put their eyeballs on something. We're pulling them onto learning. Well, prime example, let's say if you created a part of your platform, which is very liable to say, um, how to create Facebook ads or understanding Facebook as a business tool. Well, there's, mm -hmm. there's millions of marketers that will sell that as, let's say, anywhere from $17 to $3.99, $4.99. Yeah. Course, right? I, yeah. I see what you mean. Yeah. So we're kind of democratizing it. And by doing that, it sort of removes their ability to charge a bit for it, I guess what you're saying. Yeah. Which, and you, I just want to know your viewpoint on it. You know, it's, it's, that's a really good question, actually. No one's really asked me that. I, I think, I think I think the way we look at it, um, it it will not it it probably doesn't tend to compete with them as much, because the one our one strength um, is that we make it easy for people. It's fun, it's quick, it's easy, and then therefore it's an alternative to worse things they could spend you know their time doing, like social media. But you know the the flip side to that is that you don't go into a lot of depth, right? And so sometimes I think when we look at it, we think of it a bit like a funnel. You know, so if you're, you know, you have a lot of, a lot of people who want to learn new areas and what we found with young people in particular, who are, are part of our growing community and, who, you know, whose, whose interests we're taking into account when we're, when we're matching up the content, it, it seems like they're most interested in discovery often, right? So mm -hmm. there could be an in-depth course around some sort of marketing approaches or, you know, coding or this or that. And we wouldn't really compete with those. We'd be complimentary of them because what you actually have are a lot of young people saying like, I don't even know what I want to learn, right? Like mm -hmm. people say, oh, you can learn this or that online. And so it's going to cost money. It's going to take hours of time. It is doable, right? You can do, you can do all those things. But, you know, a lot of them are sort of saying, I don't even know where to start, right? Because, you know, before I even get to taking a, an in-depth course and paying some money, whatever, I just need to know the basics. And that's, I think, where we probably sit. And so in that sense... I don't think we would really encroach on them, mm -hmm. uh, except to sort of help people understand where they want to land in the first place. Hmm. So, I mean, would you say that, you know, I'm a growth strategist, so I'm like, I'm like, like you in the sense when I'm thinking about like the commonalities between different market sectors and, and like how would you have work and scale? So based upon what you just said, it kind of like opens up an opportunity for you to then reach out to the community of marketers and give them opportunity to create these fight forces and, you know, I don't necessarily think that they should have a hard pitch at the end, 
But at least if they want more information, then maybe that could be a conversion point for them to come from your platform. And like you're saying, you're touching your feet. They're touching the water before they dive headfirst in. And there's a million different marketers out there. So you can have, obviously compound like your education courses tenfold just by reaching out to the general marketing community. Yeah, it's a really interesting, it's a really interesting idea to be honest, because you're right. I mean, people can create, you know, if they work with us and they were creating something that was under their brand, right? It was mm-hmm. done by them. They're, they're, I mean, they're by definition the author, right. um, but it is conferring value to, um, to someone who's learning, mm-hmm. right, out of it um, in, in that concrete bite and that concrete micro course, then, you know, then I think it, 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 you know, you have a model that, that sort of works because it's, you know, they're, they're absolutely entitled and encouraged, right. To, Mm -hmm. to, you know, to create and democratize some of the basic learning, which people kind of already do the content marketing and other things. And so, you know, it's a little bit like that, but then it ends up being on a platform where lots and lots of people get access to it because they're already coming there to do a whole bunch of other things. And they are the author of it. They can share it themselves. They can embed it. All this stuff is actually, you know, it's open and creative commons, Mm -hmm. Uh, but they're just authoring something in a way that, you know, I don't think people would author a Wikipedia page, right? But they would author a lesson that they can send someone or, or you know, or confer to someone. Mm-hmm. And on that note, even now we're starting to get like sort of, you know, um, you know, sort of well-known celebrities, those types of people to get involved behind it. So we have like a, an astronaut, you know, Chris Hadfield, he has millions of followers. He created a, a bite on structured versus organized curiosity, right? Which is a topic that he, he's really interested in. It's kind of learning to learn. And so we have others on the way, and those are the kind of ones where, um, you know, people who have a voice um, can create something that's open and free, right, and and share it with all of their followers, and, and, and it's all open, to, you know, and to everyone after that. So, and it's just, it's different because in theory, someone could create a Wikipedia page, but like, it doesn't work yeah. like that because you don't get authorship and it's something completely different. But th- this is a way to like, you know, for people in a position with skills to, to, to transfer that, right, to people who were looking to learn. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm just looking at it. I just, like, as you were explaining, I was like, this is a hell of an opportunity. So I was like, this is time, it's yeah. now or never, right? So it's kind of like bringing it to your attention. It's like, I think if you decide to go down that road, I mean, obviously you could sign myself up and everyone else behind me. <laughs> We're more than willing to kind of jump on that bandwagon. And help in that I'm going to have to circle back and get you to ride a bike now. This is, <laughs> this is it. It sounds like, I mean, listen, I, honestly, like you'll have so much that you could, you could offer, right? To people that, you know, people starting out would love to know. And, you know, you could, you know, you could confer it in a, in a way that's quick and mm-hmm. fun and, you know, and it's enjoyable for people. So it's a, it's a good cool. thing to do. Yeah, definitely. So just, just going to the, like, you know, obviously, like that's, that's great philosophy and concepts moving away from general topic. But let's pull it back a little bit. Right. So. Like, if you could go back in time, like, you know, obviously back, back, back when your, your parents were raising you in, in East Africa or maybe in your younger days. Like, is there one thing, one specific thing that you would want to whisper in your ears to change the outcome of where you are to make it happen a lot faster? And what would that one thing be? Wow, that's a really good question. Um, it's it's hard to say because I think, you know, the way things have come for me, I don't feel bad about them, right? I'm not, you know, I'm not sort of like, oh, I wish I could have done it differently, or, which is not to say that it went perfectly, but, you know, every experience is a learning experience. And I think, you know, you kind of get to where you are and, and you have a bunch of stuff. But I suppose... I suppose I think if I could have, I would have probably said something along the lines of, you know, of um, of being a bit bold and taking risks a bit earlier, right, in life maybe. Because I, 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 you know, there's different times you can go and, and try to, you know, swing at being an entrepreneur or or trying something, 
you know, um, that's risky, but has, you know, upside potential, whether that's changing the world or making a boatload of money, whatever it is, there's a time to do it. And so for me, I took probably the, my twenties when I, um, was younger and had less to lose and had more energy. I, I ended up like working in a comfortable field at that point for 10 plus years. It's great because I learned a whole lot, right? I built a bunch of skills, but then I took on the real risk, you know, in my thirties to try something um, new. I, it, everyone's a little bit different for me. I think it, it helped that I had that experience, but you know, also you're at a different stage in your life. Like to be honest, I probably pushed back, you know, having a family then, right. Uh, because of that, these are, these are, these are, everyone has to, you know, you have to balance all those things, right. Against real life and, and family obligations and everything else. Nice. Nice. So let's just dive into like your family a little bit deeper, right? So you obviously have an entrepreneurial bug. You have entrepreneurial insight and you're, you're, you're flipping the coin, right? I mean, you could easily, if you wanted to, give up everything you're doing right now and, and go back into the financial side, right? Because I mean, obviously that's still working with what you're doing behind the scenes. So mm. is anybody in your family, like your mom, your dad, aunts, uncles, a cousin, were any of them entrepreneurs? Uh, my dad's family has a history yeah, of being sort of business, business people and having started stuff. Mm. Uh, my dad didn't, but um, a lot of the family had. And so, you know, they had that kind of mentality i think a little bit i think that's probably the closest to where i got it but it wasn't it wasn't super close to me to be honest it was kind of like this a little bit distant family it wasn't like something that's that day to day gotcha i kind of look at it as like it's um like genetic memory right it's just like as long as it's mm -hmm. in your bloodline somewhere you can kind of pick it up and utilize it and not know where it comes from but if you go back far enough there's always some root of somebody created some empire at some time or the other yeah um, exactly so Let's talk about, you know, you mentioned family a couple of different times. Let's talk about like, like, so in today's world, like right now, how do you currently manage your work hustle and your family life? You know, to be honest, probably not as well as I'd like. I think one of the challenges in the pandemic has been that the boundaries get blurred, mm -hmm. right? And so, you know, in my case, my wife and I don't even have any kids, but I think maybe, and maybe that's why, you know, I just find that I'm spending a lot of time working into the evenings and it's sort of a blurriness around when things start and finish. And, um, but otherwise, you know, I think the way I would try to do it would be to, you know, force myself to, you know, just, uh, you know, you get to the office and you change zones, right. And, and then you say, okay, I'm working now. And at the end of the day, when you're leaving the office, you know, you just don't leave it open-ended because you could just work forever. So you got to cut it off at some point. And, you know, when you're cutting it off, you look at your list of stuff to do and you figure out, you know, what did you get done? What do you, you know, you close it out for the day, right? You make sure there's no last minute emails, whatever, but then you, you put an end to it. It's easier to do when you're in like, you know, uh, a physical environment where offices are open and you just go in. Cause then you could kind of separate it. I've had, I found that hard to do during the pandemic, right? Because if you're just moving within your house, right. It, you know, it, it's, it's hard to create that kind of boundary where you truly feel like you've left work for the day. So that's all a way of saying, I probably haven't done as good a job as I would have liked in the last year plus of, uh, of building those boundaries. Nice. Try, nice. try to do it now, but you know, it's, a, it's, a, it's a work in progress. So, I mean, you're talking about, you know, potential scheduling conflicts and stuff like that, but I still think on one side of the coin, you probably have a pretty serious schedule at hand. So my next question is like, what is your morning routine? What's your morning habits that you do on a daily basis? So one of the things I really like to do these days is, is to work out in the morning. I never did that in the past because I'm just too lazy and I get up late. Um, but, you know, again, one good thing about working at home and just trying to discipline myself a bit more was that I was able to, you know, remove the commute time. And that gave me a bit more time in the morning. 
And I feel like a morning workout is a great way. I mean, look, everybody's a bit different, but if you're into that kind of thing and you're into working out in sports, I think doing it every morning is, is great because it, for me, it gets me sweating, right? It, you know, you release the endorphins, you feel kind of up, right? And you feel good and you come with a lot of energy. And um, for me, that's been a big part of my morning routine, right? I think I like sometimes feel like if I don't do it, you know, the morning, like it doesn't start off in the same way. Nice, nice. That's very, very, very I'll be, I'm, just, I'm just recapping it in my head. So my next question is, it's a three-part question, right? And I, and I think it's probably, you're probably going to give me some really diverse answers to, to this next question. So the first part of this question is like, on your journey, right? Before where you are right now, what books did you read? What books helped you get to where you are? Second part of this question is, what books are you reading now, actively reading right now? And the third part is, did you have an opportunity to author or write any books on your journey? Uh, those are really good, really interesting questions. I think I'm thinking to think of the ones that, um, you know, that that influenced me on the way in. Actually, there was one that was called um, it was called More Than Money. It was written by a guy who was a Harvard MBA. And he had this, I think, moment afterwards where he decided that he didn't know what he wanted to do. and was trying to figure, find meaning in life. And I think that that was an interesting book for one reason, which is that it helped me understand what's risky and what's not risky because his his view in the book effectively was that, you know, sometimes you could have this cushy job on one hand, and then you could have this dream to try something that you really want to try. And people will assume that the risky thing is to, is to roll the dice on their dream, right? Because you have this cushy job. That's the safe thing, right? That's the less risk option. And the whole point of the book, I think when you go through it all and you do these exercises and all, you realize that actually the riskiest thing you could do in many cases is to not try to follow your dream when the opportunity is there. Right. Because, you know, it's it depends how you how you value risk. Right. I mean, if it's yeah. if, if you if you're OK, if you're you know, if you really need a salary now to make ends meet and you have six family members, you know, people are in that situation, then you need to go for the, you know, for the the, um, you know, the one that has a, a stable salary. Right. But for those of us who have a little bit of room and flexibility and you say, well, I can also do, you know, these things that I love. It's, it's risky to, to not do that, right? Because you're almost moving on a branch of a tree away from what you actually want to do. And, you know, there's a lot of people who never get to go back and they live with a lot of regrets and, you know, so you don't want to be that. So that was a, a book that I read that kind of got me in. Book that I'm reading now, I mean, the one thing that I try to do a little bit is to read books that are different than work stuff. So I, you know, so when I worked in finance, everyone would be reading the latest like finance book. And I thought to myself, yeah, but like, you know, why don't you read like, fiction or this or that. Mm. So for me, I'm reading a book now about looking through, um, looking at business and, and the, and the markets in the world, but through an anthropological lens, which is a, uh, which a newspaper editor wrote. And I thought was kind of, kind of interesting because the, the author has a PhD in anthropology and then ended up the editor of one of the big financial publications. Um, so that's, that's new and it's kind of interesting and it fits my kind of interest and in creative perspectives on, you know, looking at things. And um, in terms of writing something myself, you know, I, I, um, I have a few ideas for things I'd like to write that are almost social or political nature in the future mm -hmm. around how, you know, we've become a society that I think in many ways um, overvalues optics and undervalues substance, right, in, in how we operate with each other and how we look at companies and everything in the world. That's, there's a, that's a whole separate conversation, but... That's one I would love to write if you know it ever came, if there was ever a chance to do it. Nice. Well, that's the thing. Opportunity knocks, man. So just by me asking that question, it's kind of like 
may want to kind of figure out like how to make that outline and you know take small bites take small bites oh, that's right no one ever asked no one asked me about that but now i'm thinking about it now so <laughs> yep so i mean i think based upon what you said i mean it kind of i'm not sure from if you're familiar with like loki and the whole marvel universe and you know disney plus just ended that that series loki but in that series, it's all about like time travel and branches, right? So you're talking about these different branches. And so I'm, I'm, I'm envisioning them in my mind, like, okay, you have all these different opportunities. Other branches may come up. And so where do you see yourself? Like, I mean, you're on this branch right now. You're going, like you said, a bull market. So where do you see this branch 20 years from now? It's really hard to say, to be honest, because the last 10 years of my life and career haven't really conformed in any way to what I would have expected. I think I was a little bit, you know, I went with the flow or the inspiration or the moment in time and it was a bit more, I guess I'm a little bit more of a risk taker in that sense, a bit more impetuous. So it's hard to say in 20 years, but my hope would be that I'm doing something that, um, you know, is contributing value to society and hopefully creating systemic change. I mean, I'm a big believer that like we need serious and systemic change, not just on access to education, which of course technology gives us an, an ability to do, right? If we build the right tools as an opportunity, but it's not just that. I mean, that's one part of inequality, right? It's educational inequality, but personally to me, I think inequality and climate change are two, two of the biggest problems that we face as a society. Um, and I think that over the next 20 years, it's gonna be a big challenge to see if we can solve those and, you know, to me, I'd love to work on on or contribute somehow to moving those both in the right direction, because I think those are the challenges of our time. Yeah. Right. And I think we're going to need a lot of people working on both of them. Yeah, I think the fact that you brought that up and I think just like from you trans transitioning from finance to education. And I think that that's the direction you're going in. Right. And I mean, whatever you're creating right now with your current platform, I think without leaps and bounds, it will definitely get you there. And I think to your point, originally you were saying that you guys started off with zero and you had 50 and now you're doing 50 per week as far as course numbers. Well, then that mm -hmm. 50 could easily become 500, right? It could easily become yeah. 10,000. If you're talking about compounding and numbers, like that's the way it's going to go. So I definitely mm -hmm. see it down that road 20 years. Um, so going into another question, right? So with all this different technology stuff floating around, I mean, you have a digital platform. On that platform, you're talking about technologies as well. What technology or software are you currently using that you would not be able to do what you're doing without? Mm, uh, I have to think about it. I mean, I, I suppose, you know, it, it's not, a, I wouldn't say it's a specific thing or software thing. I'd, I'd say there's a lot of things that go into what we're doing. I think one of the more interesting ones that we're using now is, is using AI to basically personalize the learning path. So, so that, that's one, I mean, there's a lot of things we couldn't do without, but I'd say that's one that, that I think is really interesting and we're really excited about the direction it'll go in. And the idea being that, you know, if you create a, if you do a micro course, it's a short enough data point that's quick. And then, and that gives you a chance to learn a bit and start to serve up better, you know, recommendations based on what you've done. It's, it's no different than the Amazon or, you know, the let's say the Netflix engine, right? You write the thing and it says, here's other things you'd like. The difference is with Netflix, you know, it's like a two hour movie or whatever, yeah. you know, with, 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 with a micro course, it's very, very quick. We can look at the, how people use them and the, you know, it, it's all anonymized, but data on how people learn. And then as you know, also the, the, the learner paths and personalize that. And I'd say like, that's one we couldn't do without because it's really core to our model mm -hmm. and is to keep improving over time an engine that keeps you engaged in constructive learning um, by serving you stuff that, you know, that is relevant, that you care about. 
it's kind of not that different than social media in the sense of, you know, it's the engagement mechanics they use. The problem is they're feeding you like extremist content and, you know, you know, controversial stuff because that's what keeps you there and they want to keep you selling ads. Our whole thing is we want to use that same approach, those engagement mechanics, um, but to give you a dopamine rush or something positive, right? And and that and that can be done. Um, but that but that's yeah. So I'd say that that kind of the personalized learner paths and the sort of AI-driven model behind that are are, are are pretty critical for us. Nice, nice. Well, I'm definitely happy that you're you're going into the AI space because to your point, right? Like Netflix, Amazon, Microsoft, like all the the big household brand names are are essentially looking to see what users are doing at what point and based upon mm -hmm. that conversion point then they'll adapt that data based upon the response of the user so it only makes sense in education if you're looking for like super engagement that's the direction you would go in mm -hmm. um, yep. so let's just, just back up i think earlier on in this conversation when we first started and i was talking about the the poet and him and i sharing the same birthday so i just want you to kind of you know I, on your Instagram page, you had like a little video and you was talking about the naming of the company. Why did you name the company? So just go ahead and, and tell that story here, if you don't mind. Yeah, I mean, you know, for me, I, I, I was, uh, I, I am a, a fan of the poet Rumi. He lived 800 years ago um, and was born in what's, you know, now Afghanistan. He wrote in uh, Farsi or, or what's called Dari in Afghanistan. And, uh, you know, is extraordinarily respected in the Middle East across Afghanistan, Turkey, uh, Syria, you know, Iraq, Iran. Um, but what's interesting, he actually, he's like apparently one of the best-selling poets in the U.S., right? Um, and it's just, you know, the poetry was around love and, and equality and um, tolerance. And, and I've always loved Rumi's poetry. So I just mm -hmm. took, you know, an E for education and threw it on the end. So it's R-U-M-I-E. And that was... That was the uh, inspiration, you know, behind behind calling, uh, kind of calling it Rumi. Nice, nice. And I think, uh, like, you know, obviously just doing research on, on his background a little bit, it was one of the quotes that I pulled that, you know, surprisingly, I think you fit this bill 100%, right? His quote says, don't grieve. Anything you lose comes around in another form, right? So in, yeah. in your case, it's, it's kind of like, you know, you were a financial guy. And then obviously everything that you utilize in that space has come around full circle to make you're more of an educator now. So I thought that was definitely a, um, a solid quote to superimpose on you a little bit right there, right? So that's let's a great go, one, yeah. Yeah. So I got this is this is a question that I think that you're gonna be able to fulfill it very well for for a listener. And mm -hmm. I want you to think about yourself as the listener. If let's say I think you're in your 30s right now. So let's say maybe someone's they're 30 years old, they're in the financial district right now, and they're not finding that their voice is being listened to. They may not see that they're passionate. They just got into that space for money. What words of wisdom would you give to them for them to take that leap of faith and to chase after their dreams and passions? I think the most important thing is that they have to know themselves. They have, they have to know themselves and figure out what they really want authentically. The reason I say that is that it's, there's no one size fits all approach to that, right? You know, for some people that situation will work for other people. It won't. What I found was that, um, the hardest thing was for me to detach myself from other people's dreams. Right. Cause I, cause at some point I was saying to myself, Oh, I couldn't possibly leave this. Right. This is great. And it's, you know, but some part of it was social, pressure and expectations around the fact that I knew that like other people, like this is a job that's coveted, right? And other people really want, and they think I'm lucky to have it. And then at some point you can feel kind of foolish, right? You're like, well, you know, if it's, 
if it's everybody's dream job, like how can I leave it? And the truth is you have to really, you know, over the years be introspective and, and start to really try to plot out where you're going to be in the future and ask yourself, like, is this, is this what I want? Because if you're living someone else's dream, eventually you're going to be unhappy about it and you're not going to realize exactly what, you know, why you're there. And then maybe you're subconscious that you kind of just stayed locked into it, but it, it is difficult for people to, for everybody and, and, and for myself also to sort of detach myself from a set of expectations that were societally imposed, family imposed or this. And, uh, you know, you have tunnel vision because you're working around a bunch of people doing the same thing. You start to measure yourself against the measuring stick that all of those, those people use. Right. Because, you know, that's your social circle. Um, that, that would, I would say would be the biggest advice They have to know themselves because it's only when you get some comfort with what you want to do and you can look out at someone else who works next to you and they're 10 years older that you can ask yourself, like, do I really want to be where this person is 10 years from now? And if it's the answer is no, then, you know, then maybe that's not where you want to stick it out any longer. Nice. Very nice. Like I said, I knew you was going to deliver. I knew you were here doing a nose. So, so um, after saying such, such an impactful answer, how can someone get in contact with you? Like what, what platforms, what's your URL? So Rumi, I encourage everyone to check out because again, it's open and free. It's the Wikipedia of free micro learning. Just on your phone or anything else, just go to rumi.org, right? R-U-M-I-E.org. You could, you know what I do on my phone is I, I, I pull it up and then uh, I just bookmarked it and threw the icon next to my social media apps. So whenever my brain goes into a folder where I put them into, which I literally do on autopilot, like I, without even thinking, I go in and we have two seconds and I'm thinking about something else. I grab the phone and I start going to load Instagram. I see Rumi Learn. I think, oh, wait, you know what? I've, if I'm going to spend five, six minutes on something, let me get it, you know, let me do something positive and, and build a new skill or, or learn a, a cool concept or whatever. So try, track out Rumi.org for sure and um, try to, you know, work it into your day. And then otherwise, I think, you know, you could also find us on social media. Um, Rumi Learn on social media um, or come join our community on Discord um, uh, or, you know, I'm, I'm at uh, So So Fancy on social media. It's usually the easiest way to reach me. My last name's Fancy. Uh, fancy was taken. So Fancy was taken. So I doubled down. And so So Fancy was available. So that's what I've just gone with. Oh, it's crazy. Solid. So just go to some bonus questions, right? Yeah. So my first bonus question is, Outside of your family, what is your most significant achievement to date? That's an interesting one. I, I would, um, I'd say probably starting Rumi because you know I love what we're doing and and um, and it's moving needle in education. That's really important. Nice, nice. So the next one, I'm definitely inspired to see who you're going to say for this one because it's such a random question. But then again, you may have an answer waiting already in your mind. If you could spend 24 hours in one day, uninterrupted for those 24 hours with anyone dead or alive, who would it be and why? I would probably say Malcolm X. Hmm. And the reason I would say Malcolm X is I've always been a fan of how, um, of how he merged uh, book smarts, which he picked up in prison, actually, when he had the chance to educate himself and the street smarts that he'd learned in his life before that, mm-hmm. to look at the system and ask probing and intelligent questions of the system around us, the social systems, the opportunities. And I think he had a tremendous ability to see something through a different perspective and to articulate it to people in a way that they could understand. Mm-hmm. 
and that help people understand that there are serious grievances or wrongs that are being done and they're being accepted. Um, you know, just because people kind of, you know, it's just what they are, it's already there, right? And, and they just, you know, it's status quo. Uh, I've, I've always been a big fan of it. And I'd be curious to sort of see what it look at, you know, what it'd say about today's society, right? Like, what have we gotten wrong since the last 60 years? What have we gotten right? I think it's very, very interesting. I think part of playing into that, like the, what he believed in was like equality. And I think part of your mission is education as equality as well. So I think mm-hmm. you're still continuing his mission to, to a certain extent as well. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I'd say so. I mean, it's, you know, it's all in line with, with true equality is, is that, you know, people need, um, I think, equality of access, right? And if certain people have uh, the potential to, you know, they have a chance to realize their potential and a bunch of other people don't. There's a, you know, a girl in Newark or somewhere who you know, who could be the next Steve Jobs, but she's just not going to get that opportunity. Mm. I think that that's a challenge. And that's what, you know, Rumi's all about trying to solve is whether, you know, it's we're doing programs for girls education in Afghanistan now. Local nice. language, in, in Dari, actually, the same language that Rumi used to write in their Farsi, um, you know, all local content. And, you know, that's important because right now in that in that country, you know, uh, U.S. troops are pulling out and it's becoming unstable. We're also doing it in English if you go to Rumi.org for, you know, people like you and I. Across the board, I think, you know, there's, um, you know, there's a there's a lack of equality in education that um, that people we take for granted right we reach a certain age in life and and it's and it's it's easy to forget that like there's a lot of people including the cleaner at your building or this or that who you know they they just never got that chance right and it's and it's a shame so i mean i'm happy you brought up like opportunity because i mean you speak three languages don't you you speak i think it's french spanish and english is that correct that's right yeah yeah so like like when did you receive that opportunity was it because you were internationally raised or was it something that you pursued uh it was a little bit of both but more that i pursued it because i grew up in toronto they would teach you uh you know you had french as part of the curriculum in in most parts of canada so i started learning french and then i ended up not liking the french teacher very much so i switched to spanish and then over time i spent time in those in countries where they speak french and spanish and then did it a bit for work and kind of picked it up more and more but i think i made an effort in some level because to me it was always a way to understand different people, different cultures, right? As you, you know, the, more, the closer you can get to their native language, the easier it is to, to you know, really connect with them. Wow, wow. Well, definitely opportunity knocks and you have to kick in that door. So going into closing, I always like to give whoever I'm interviewing an opportunity to grab the microphone and to become the host of my show. Any questions that you want to ask me, the microphone is yours. Uh, you know, well, I mean, you asked me a couple of good questions that I'm, I'm actually curious. I'm not sure if you've answered them before, but I'd love to hear your answer. You know, like, who would you, who would you, if you had, you know, 24 hours, you could, you could hang out with someone, you know, um, uh, dead or alive. Like, who would you, who would you think of and why? Yeah. So originally I had said Einstein just because, you know, going back to the whole equality thing and, and the fact that he was in the midst of becoming who he is today at the same time we had a world war and you know mm-hmm. as a kid he was growing up and they looked at him as like a slow dumb dog but in reality he was years ahead of everyone else that was one of my answers in addition to that recently i would say elon musk you know obviously right now we have virgin going to space we have amazon going to space and i could totally see elon's like the hell with that we're going to mars right he would probably be the first yeah. person to potentially walk on Mars. So sitting down with Elon for 24 hours is just to kind of see, like, how did you go from being in the finance thing to creating this other thing to then you made cars and batteries and now you're going to space? Like, how the hell does your brain even 
equate these different principles, but you've seen a, you know, he's seen a process from day one to get him to where he is right now. That's an interesting one. You're right. I mean, I, I mean what a fascinating path he would have and, and thoughts and visibility on things. Yep. yep. Any other questions? I think the only one I was to ask, actually, again, I'm, I'm recycling one of yours because yeah. uh, because I liked it, um, and I'm curious now. Uh, is is um, what would the book? What book are you reading right now? Or what's the maybe even what's the one that's most impacted you recently? So I think it's just two books. It's like one is the five second rule, just because it's it's people think of it as like an activity book to say, okay, I'm going to count down to five to do something, but there's more psychology behind that than just counting down. This is kind of awakens a particular chemical reaction for you to make that change. So that book is always going to be a book that I'm always going to recommend. And in addition to that, um, Bronson's Traffic Secrets. It's a very, very like hands-on. He's like, listen to his audio book. I usually listen to my audio books at like 1.5 to 2.0 speed just to kind of catch the information in a shorter period of time. And mm -hmm. with his, I had to kind of maybe do it at like 1.1 because he talks so fast anyway. He's yeah. talking at like one and a half speed. But he drops so much information, so much different nuggets just about how to capture nuggets, how to market. So that those are the two books that I would definitely recommend that, you know, I read. I read probably three or four times each already. Oh, that's super interesting. I'm going to check those out. Thanks for uh, sharing. Yep, not a problem. Well, I definitely want to appreciate you for coming on the show. I, I think you know, like, we promised and we definitely delivered. It was definitely an interesting conversation. We went up and down, left, right, here and there. But it all comes down to, you know, you have figured out how to take your financial background and utilize it for the good. You left the dark side and now you're on the other side of the coin to where you're giving away education for free, which is a commendable thing to even be in that state of mind. So I definitely appreciate you being on the show today. Thanks for having me. It's, it's really great to talk about it and you know help, help people understand kind of what we're trying to bring to the world for everyone's benefit. Nice. S.A. Grant, over and out. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Boss Uncaged. I hope you got some helpful insight and clarity to the diverse approach on your journey to becoming an Uncaged Trailblazer. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, review, and share the podcast. If this podcast has helped you or you have any additional questions, reach out and let me know. Email me at ask at sagrant.com or drop me your thoughts via a call or text at 762 233 boss that's 762-233-2677 i would love to hear from you remember to become a boss in cage you have to release your inner beast sa grant signing off listeners of boss and cage are invited to download a free copy of our host sa grant's insightful ebook become an uncaged trailblazer Learn how to release your primal success in 15 minutes a day. Download now at www.bossuncaged.com forward slash free book.